And so, Jesus, you are so, so good to us. And so I pray you be good to us again this morning and just speak to us. Maybe even there's an intrinsic link to what I've prepared unknowingly, linking it to what's been posted up. And so I pray this now in Jesus's name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And if you've got a Bible there with you on your screen or, or a paper version, look up Hebrews. That's page 1201. Page 1201. If you need one of these churches Bibles, just put up a hand and Sue or Stuart will bring one to you. Please do do that. If you haven't got one at home, then take one of these home with you um, to read. If it's more accessible than the one you do have or if you don't have one on your shelves, uh, then take one of these. Page 1201 and Hebrews. As a church... As a church, what we're about is people meeting Jesus and growing up in Jesus over and above everything else. Everything else submits to and serves people meeting Jesus and growing in Jesus. That is entirely and fully what we are about. People knowing Jesus in all his goodness, all his greatness, coming to trust him, obey him, delight in him, and then constantly growing stronger, bigger, more delightful in who he is. And therefore, I'm absolutely thrilled that we're re-embarking on our journey through Hebrews. Um, we got almost to the end of chapter two over six or eight weeks before the summer, and we're at the very very end we'll get to in a minute the very last paragraph of chapter two which is where we've got to today but as it's been six or seven or eight weeks um, let me remind you of a little bit of context and some of us have joined the church since then um, and so it's not a reminder for you it's the first time isn't it um, the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus and that Jesus is better it's probably a lecture uh, that's been transcribed when it was first delivered it had such an impact that they wrote it down and then God has preserved it for 2,000 years so we can draw on that wisdom and that inspiration all about that Jesus is better. First of all, at the beginning of chapter one, that Jesus is better even than the prophets. Now the prophets were the best of people. If you like, they're the best of this world. Wonderful messengers of God who had an awful lot to say. In fact, right at the beginning, chapter one, verse one, it says that God spoke many times and in various ways through the prophets. They just could not speak, stop speaking about Jesus. But then it says, but now he has spoken through his son, who is the exact representation of God. The son's word sustains the entire universe. Jesus is better than the prophets. But that wasn't enough because the second half of chapter one is that Jesus is better than even the angels. If the prophets are the best of this world, the angels are the best of that world, and Jesus is better than both. In fact, where the prophets proclaim who Jesus is, the angels actually worship Jesus. If you flick uh, to chapter one and sentence number six, the big numbers are our chapters, the little numbers are our sentences. Uh, chapter one and sentence six, it says again, when God brings his firstborn, that's code for Jesus into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So Michael and Gabriel and that whole legion of angels when Jesus was born, all these amazing magnificent celestial creatures are bowed down on their faces praising Jesus. In fact, as we sung some of those great songs led by Dave and Johnny this morning, the angels were joining us in the praise of Jesus. We just couldn't hear them because uh, their, their tunes are so magnificent. Our ears can't pick them up like a dog whistle. You know, you can't hear it, can you? But it's there. They're praising Jesus as well. In fact, by the end of chapter one, this original preacher, speaker of this, of this talk, 
amazingly says, not only is Jesus better than the prophets who proclaim him, better than the best of this world, not only is he better than the angels who worship him, better than the best of that world, Jesus is in fact God. What a remarkable statement. 40, 50 years after Jesus had walked with dirty feet and scraped up toenails in the dust of Palestine, they're saying Jesus is also God. Look at chapter 1 and sentence 8. It says, but about the Son, another code word for Jesus, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever. About Jesus, God says, O God. Do you see that? God calls Jesus God. And not just God, but God on his throne forever and ever. That's who Jesus is. Now, I don't know if that's the Jesus that you know. It's the Jesus that this morning has focused on in a very real way, isn't it? Jesus, the eternal, forever reigning, ruling monarch of the entire universe. God himself on his throne. And so the shock when we entered chapter 2, the remarkable shock, is that the creator, Jesus, is crucified is that deity, Jesus, dies. Is that the one who is majestic is murdered. Look at chapter 2 and sentence 9 and see the contrast. Sentence 9 of chapter 2. But we do see this Jesus. We see this exalted Jesus. We see Jesus who is God. We do see this Jesus, but he's been made lower than the angels. He became a man, a human being. Lower than the ones who were worshipping him. Lower than the angels. He now is crowned with glory and honour. Why? Because not only was he lower than the angels, but he suffered death. Do you see the language there in verse 9? He suffered death. Deity died. The creator was crucified. Majesty was murdered. Do you see the Himalaya heights and the Grand Canyon lows? But the one who was God himself, who made everything, who by his word, we're told in chapter 1, verse 3, sustains the very breath you're going to take next. You only breathe now, chapter 1, verse 3, because Jesus says, breathe, 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 breathe. If Jesus stopped saying that, you would stop breathing. That one was willing to die, to have his breath taken away. Why? Why? Why would Jesus, with every opportunity of God himself, with every power and resource of God himself, why would Jesus choose first the incarnation and then the crucifixion? First to become a squalling baby in a stable, half forgotten, and then to be crucified as a criminal. Why? Why would he do that? Well, this last chapter of this last paragraph of chapter two from sentence 14 grapples with that, answers that. Let me read it and then we'll dig into it. So we're at sentence 14 of chapter two. Here we go. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 
For surely it's not angel he, angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's see if we can unpack this and see just how profound it is. The first clause in verse 14 is a summary. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity. It's children of the world are made of flesh and blood. He's just talking about people. It's kind of poetic Hebrew language. Since human beings are made of flesh and blood, Jesus himself shared in that same humanity. He became exactly like one of us. It's a summary sentence of what we've just talked about, that great descending from God to being human. That's who Jesus is, fully God and fully human, truly God and truly human. Then look in the paragraph, three times a reasoning word is used, an explanation word. Look in the middle of sentence 14, so that, do you see that little phrase there? Why did he become man? So that, first reason. Then look at the beginning of sentence 17. For this reason. Do you see that? Why did Jesus become human? For this reason. Reason number two. And then look at the beginning of sentence 18. Do you see it there? Because. Why did Jesus become human? Because. Third reason. Do you see the structure of the paragraph? Three reasons why Jesus would descend from being God to being human. So that, for this reason, because. One, two, three. Let's take them in turn and just see how profound they are. The first one there in sentence 14 through to sentence 16 is so that he could enter the actual battlefield of this world and defeat death. Jesus descended from being God to being a human so that he could actually enter the battlefield and therefore could defeat death. If he stayed God, he would never die and therefore he could never defeat death, could he? To be able to defeat death, he had to descend onto the battlefield of humanity so that he could die and then defeat death afterwards. Let me read it again with that in mind. So that... By his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Let me see if I can illustrate it like this and give you a brain break. Imagine for a moment you're watching your favourite football team, if football's your thing. And you're in the middle middle or so of the rows, you're about halfway up the stands. What is above you? Above you is the commentary box. Have you seen that amazing commentary box? It's normally glass-fronted and behind it are some has-been footballers who are vaguely coherent commentating on the match that's going on below. They're way up there, aren't they? The match is occurring down there. There is no way those commentators can do anything other than stand in judgment above the pitch unless they leave their commentator's box and enter the pitch itself, can they? They cannot win the game. They cannot be part of the game unless they leave where they are and come down to where the game is actually being played. And so it is with Jesus. He is God himself. If if you like, he's up there in the commentary box looking at it all happening. But the only way he can win the game is by coming down onto the pitch and joining where the battle actually is happening. And friends, no other religion in the world claims to have a God who left the commentary box. 
No other religion in the world claims to have a God that actually moved from being up there in the clouds passing judgment to actually come down themselves and join us in the pitch of life. They might send their representatives. They might parachute in the odd word of encouragement, advice or condemnation. But they never, no other religion claims their God ever left the commentary box and actually came down. But Jesus, our God, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, the heart of our claim about him is actually, yes, he did. He really, really did. And what this little couple of sentences then goes on to say, you see, is, well, with death defeated, the devil is defeated as well. With death defeated, the devil is defeated as well. Do you see that? So that by Jesus' death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Death is the devil's champion, his strongest warrior. If death is defeated, then actually Satan is defeated as well. Let's go back to our illustration and see if I can help us with this a little bit. Uh, first of all, Jesus is like the commentator who actually leaves his commentary box and then comes onto the pitch. Now, can you see him on the pitch? Now, imagine for a moment you're watching and the game is drawn and it's a massively important game. And your commentator, now come player, right in the last minute of the game, traps the ball and shimmies around the last defender and then strikes the ball beautifully, leaving the goalkeeper, the opposition goalkeeper, stranded, and it's a goal just as the referee blows the final whistle. Who has your commentator come player? Who has he actually defeated? He has defeated the goalkeeper, hasn't he? In one-on-one -on -one combat, the goalkeeper has been defeated. But as the goalkeeper falls on his knees, no, I'm defeated. What about the rest of the goalkeeper's team? They fall on their knees as well. I'm defeated. We're all defeated because the keeper is down. We are all down. And so it is with death and the devil, isn't it? Jesus defeats death. And as death falls on its knees, slain, so just like the rest of the goalkeeper's team fall as well, slain, so Satan falls and says, the war is lost. I might get the odd nudge in. I might get the odd uppercut in. But the battle is lost. But friends, wonderfully in the Bible, captured just a little bit here, but it comes later on, wonderfully in the Bible, there's something more going on. Because in our little illustration, the opposition goalkeeper there represents death, and the opposition players represent Satan, don't they? The devil, yes, they're all defeated. Because the one player, the commentator who joined the pitch and scored the goal, the one, the one has defeated them all. But also there's a victory there, isn't there? Because as that player... There he is, Jesus, our soccer player. It's a ridiculous illustration, isn't it? Yeah. But as that striker strikes that ball and it sails into the top corner and the striker leaps up and goes, I've won, I've won, I've won. What do the rest of his team do at that moment? They leap up and go, we've won, we've won. And what about the fans in the stage? It feels like Easter. What about the, the fans in the stage? They leap up and go, we've won, we've won. And you're at home sipping your Coke. Coke, sipping your Coke, watching the game, and you leap out of your chair and say, I've won, I've won. Well, you haven't won, have you? The striker scored the goal, he won. But because you are on his team or you're one of his fans, you wear his kit, you parade his colours, his victory is your victory. As Jesus defeats death 
and defeat Satan. As Jesus says, I have won. All and any who tie themselves to him with trust and obedience, all and any can go, I have won. His victory is my victory. So reason number one, and we will pick up pace for the other two, but reason number one that Jesus became like us, truly God but truly human, so that he might enter the battlefield and defeat death. He might leave the commentary box and join the match to defeat death. And as death is defeated by him, it is defeated for all of us. We no longer fear it. Reason number two. Reason number two, sentence 17. For this reason, do you see it there? For this reason, at the beginning of sentence 17. The second reason that Jesus, God himself, would become truly human is so that he could be an effective mediator. That Jesus could effectively reconcile the broken relationship between God the Father and people on earth. Not remaining distant, but by being able to stand in the gap between two, being truly God and being truly human. Let me read sentence 17 again and notice the language of high priest. We could translate that as mediator. In their their minds, the high priest was the mediator between people and God. It's not our kind of language today, but it was their kind of language for the one who could mediate between God and people. Sentence 17. For this reason, Jesus was made like God people, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That word atonement, I don't know, you don't use it in everyday language, do you? I wouldn't imagine it's in your bedtime stories to your kids, atonement. Literally think of it as at-one-ment. At-one-ment. When you make atonement, you take two things that are broken apart and make them at one again. Jesus is able to make us at one again with God as a perfect high priest, perfect mediator. Now, why? Why? That he's truly God and truly human. Does that make him the perfect mediator? Well, it's because he has a foot on both sides, doesn't it? Let me illustrate it again and let you just think of it in a picture form, if you like. Um, I was listening on Friday to Radio 4, because I'm that old now. Uh, And they had a series of interviews, like a panel interview, of people who had been involved in the Northern Rock collapse. Do you remember the bank that collapsed about, actually 10 years ago, that's why it was. It was a 10-year anniversary of uh, when it all happened. They're journalists and they had various people involved in the banking crisis, and they had local uh, figures from the Northeast, which is particularly who were affected by the collapse of the Northern Rock Bank. And one of the conversations they had was about a leading figure, a lady who had almost, almost saved the situation. And there was a conversation about why she had been most effective. And initially it was about her academic qualifications and her experience and these sorts of things, which were profound and amazing and remarkable. But then they settled on the agreement. It's because she was born in Newcastle in the northeast, the heartland of the northern uh, rock territory, if you like, and had grown up there right the way through university and her first opening career, which had been in banking, all in the northeast. 
And then she'd had a second career in Westminster. Spent 12 years working in the Houses of Parliament. And she uniquely was able to mediate between the bankers and the population of the Northeast and the politicians and the policymakers of Westminster because she was in both worlds, trusted by both worlds, understood both worlds. And so it is with Jesus. If he remained only truly God, how could he speak on the behalf of people? Or if he was only truly human, like all the other human high priests, how could he truly speak for God? But if he is truly human and truly God, he is the perfect high priest, the perfect mediator to negotiate the at one the return to solidarity of what had been broken. And again, friends, no other God does this. All other religions have a God who demands that we become like them. We have a God in Jesus who chooses to become like us. Do you see the difference? All other religions have a God who demands that by our moral conduct and our behaviour and what we do, that we must become like them before we are acceptable. Jesus is the one God who says, I will become like you and I will make you acceptable. You don't have to try and get to me. I will come to you. And the scars on my back and the wounds on my body is how I will carry you home. Do you see the radical difference? Third reason. Number one, remember, so that he might break the power of death, so he can enter the battlefield and win. Number two, for this reason, so he might become the perfect mediator, truly God and truly human. And then lastly, the because of sentence 18. Do you see it there, the third great reason? Why did God, Jesus himself, become truly human? Thirdly, because he himself suffered when he was tempted and is therefore able to help those who are being tempted. He did it so that he could live our lives and therefore support us in our life. So he might suffer in the same way and live in the same way as we do, so that when we suffer and find life hard, or when we delight in it and are full of laughter, Jesus knows exactly what that's like. Truly, Emmanuel, his birth name, God with you. He truly is, because he's lived it and done it. Again, let me illustrate this and give you a chance to picture it for a moment. I mean, this isn't a personal illustration, but imagine you're pregnant for a moment, not something I've done. Um, Imagine you're pregnant for a moment and you're weeks off the, the big labor moment. It's your first child. You're anxious and excited and out of breath. You know, all the, all the normal things at nine months pregnant. Which midwife would you prefer? Midwife A comes in and she's full of enthusiasm and she's well trained and she lists off her qualifications. And then as you're having a cup of coffee, she's chatting over the kitchen table about what you expect. You say to her, what, what were your labors like? And she goes, oh, I don't have any children. Or midwife number two who comes in and she parades the same set of incredible qualifications and experiences and the rest and is equally impressive and reassuring. And then as you say in passing conversation, how are your labours like? And she tells you about the six she went through. Now just to have a midwife is a remarkable privilege for us in our country, let's be honest. And I think it's wonderful, those who train to be midwives, obviously. But in my illustration, for the sake of my illustration, 
Wouldn't you rather have the one who's been through it? Who knows what it's like? Who can speak first-hand experience? That's what Jesus does here, you see. The third reason he doesn't stay distant in heaven in all the safety and security, but actually comes to earth and is born in a stable to a 14-year-old mother who's rejected by her family. You realise when she goes to Bethlehem, that's her home village. And so all those innkeepers who say you're not welcome, they're relatives, blood relatives, uncles, aunts, cousins, too ashamed to welcome their, the pregnant black sheep of the family home. But Jesus worked as a carpenter. His back was probably broken by the age of 30. Hands calloused, joints aching, brutal hard work. Died as a criminal. He knows abandonment by friends. He's cried. He's laughed. He's told terrible jokes. I mean, really, Jesus. Camel through an eye of a needle, that's the best you could do as a joke. Yeah? He's lived it all. He knows your life. And so when he says, I'm your friend alongside you, John 15, 15, Jesus says, I'm your friend. He really knows what he's talking about. And when Jesus says, I'm your brother, he really knows what he's talking about. And so which is it for you this morning? These remarkable, amazing realizations. So in chapter one, Jesus is deity. In chapter two, his death, majesty to murder, creator to crucified. Why would he do that? He did it to be the victor for you, to come into the battlefield and win on your behalf against death and the devil. He did it to become the great mediator, to make at one between God and people in a unique way. And he did it to be your best friend and perfect big brother who's lived the life you are living right now. Let me pray for us. Jesus, this is remarkable, incomprehensible, unique. The only way we're going to understand it is if you help us. And I pray actually for and against a mental understanding. I pray for a mental understanding, an intellectual understanding, and against that intellectual understanding being all there is that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds, as Romans 12.1 puts it, that as our minds grapple with this remarkable reality that Jesus came into our world to be the victor and mediator and friend in a unique way, that as our minds are renewed with that knowledge, it might transform our feeling, our assurance, our living, our readiness to trust. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. Johnny's probably got a couple of songs for us. A couple would be great, Johnny, if they're there. A couple of songs for us. In one of them, we'll take an offering. That's one way to say thank you to Jesus with our money. If you want to do that, you can. Put up more post-its. They can be about Jesus now. You've got some stuff to say thank you to. Put up some more post-its. Pray specifically for your friends. Or just stand and praise Jesus. The victor, the mediator, and the friend. What do you want to say thank you to him in song for this morning? Because he's your victor, because he's your mediator, or because he's your friend. Allow that to fuel our worship as we stand and sing. Let's stand and sing.